Church, welcome here this morning. Isn't it good to be in the house of the Lord today? It's my privilege to be with you all and my privilege once again to preach God's life-changing word. This morning we are in Revelation chapter 5 of our series, Revealing Jesus. And before we move into the final verses of this chapter today, I want to ask you two questions to refresh and kickstart your memory. Here's the first question. Who is worthy to take the scroll and break its seals? What's his name? Jesus. That's right. His name is Jesus, and he will forever be worthy. Amen. But did you get the importance of perhaps the bigger question last time? Yes, we know that Jesus is worthy, but the question then arises, why is he worthy? And what makes him worthy? You see, it's quite easy for us to say, well, he's worthy because he's God, right? But remember, God has to do things legally, which means that he has to fulfill certain criteria to be able to be worthy to redeem us from our fallen state. Yes, God is worthy of being God all on his own, without us and, and without all of this, yet he chose to follow a legal process of atonement for sin, so that mankind had a way out of its condition. Which I then believe, church, adds so much more credibility and meaning to what Jesus has done and what he will bring to completion at the end of the age. It adds so much more credibility and weight to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ without which there would be no redemption. Now, another question for you this morning, who's ever been in a courtroom before? You don't have to tell us why you were there. You can just raise your hands if that's you. <laughs> If you haven't been in a courtroom before, who's ever watched Judge Judy on DSTV? Right? What is one of the symbols that you'll find there that would represent justice? A scale, right? That's right. Have a look at this image of a typical legal type of scale just to give you a picture of what I'm referring to. In a courtroom, you have this image represented because it symbolizes justice and even though the law doesn't always work out the way that it should in this world because of the evil that is within man, the scale is meant to represent impartiality and the obligation of the law to weigh the evidence presented to the court and then make a fair judgment based on the evidence. Have a look at the next image which shows how the South African judiciary also included the scale to represent fairness and impartiality. And put that next image up for us. So church, the scale is a symbol of justice and fairness around the world when it comes to our legal system. But did you know that the Bible even speaks about scales and about being fair when it comes to dealing with matters righteously? This is really important to God. In Proverbs chapter 20 verse 23 it says, Differing weights are an abomination to the Lord, and a false scale is not good. And in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 10, it says that the Lord demands accurate scales and balances. He sets the standards for fairness. So church, if God sets the standards for fairness, let me ask you this. Would he break his standards? No, he's a just God. He's a righteous God, right? And he will never operate outside of his nature and his character. Satan knows this about God and how then gives him certain rights over fallen man. And that's why Jesus had to fulfill every legal criteria 
to be able to be our worthy kinsman redeemer, to redeem what man had lost in his fallen state, and to bring the scales of justice into balance. That's what Jesus has done for us. Now, there's an interesting thing that I want to show you here about the word worthy. To understand the significance of being worthy, you really need to know the etymology of the word. Does everyone know what etymology means? Not entomology, which is the study of insects, but etymology. It means the study of the origin of a word and how its meaning has evolved throughout history. Because one side of the scale, of course, is going to tip downward, and the other side is going to tip upward. And in order to weigh out the punishment that is worthy of, what do you do? You start adding the punishment on the other side of the scale, and when the amount of punishment brings the balance bar of the scale into equilibrium, when someone's been convicted and we find out that their crime is severe, we'll say, well, they deserve that punishment, or they are worthy of that punishment. And church, let me ask you this, what about our rewards? We spoke about that a few weeks back when we looked at living with a heavenly mindset. But let's suppose that you wanted to find out what rewards you were worthy of. Using the same illustration, you would take all of your good works and you would place it on one side of the scale and your good works would hopefully cause it to go down. Let's suppose that it did and God started adding rewards on the other side. He would keep on adding rewards on the other side until what? Until the balance bar is brought into equilibrium, and when it's brought into equilibrium, that's the amount of reward that your good works are worthy of. Is it making sense, church? It's very important that we understand this, because that's what the angel is wanting to know here in chapter 5, and what is cleared up in the same chapter. Who is worthy to take the scroll and break its seals? Now, as we discovered last time, the lamb who was slain is worthy. But let's just put this into context for a moment. Remember the scroll that Jesus takes from the right hand of God? What is it again? It is the title deed to the earth, right? So question, how do we calculate if someone is worthy to take the title deed to the whole earth? Well, we take all the sins of the whole world from the time that man fell and we place it on one side of the scale, right? then what you do is you begin to put the punishment on the other side of the scale until there's an equilibrium. That determines the debt that has to be paid in order for there to be redemption. And then the person who's able to pay the debt and is willing to pay the debt and does pay the debt with his own life and adds all of the world's sins to his account is the only one that's worthy to step forward and take the title deed to the earth. Only that person, amen, you can give the Lord a, a shout of praise right there. <laughs> Only that person has the right to break the seals and redeem the earth. Because he is a worthy kinsman redeemer, and he's brought the balance, or the, brought the scales of justice into equilibrium. And you know what I was thinking about when I went through the word this morning, what was the position where Jesus was on the cross? It was like this, right? He is the only one who's been able to bring this into balance. Let's give him some praise and glory in this place. Church, that's what our Lord and Savior has done for us. That's what it means to be a part of his redemptive plan. And like C.S. Lewis said, if you're in Christ, which means if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, the story of every man and every woman 
becomes a story of redemption and transformation. Amen? Now, church, what is a fitting response to what Jesus has done? Well, the rest of the chapter tells us what a fitting response is because once Jesus takes the scroll, the whole of heaven explodes into praise and worship. And church, that's what I wanted to focus on for the rest of the message today. Now that we've established the price, let's establish the type of worship that would be befitting. And to do so, let's consider the kind of worship that's going on in heaven when Jesus takes the scroll and let's see how that interfaces with us here and now. Because if there is a reference to how we should worship in the Bible, then we should take notice of it. Amen? Amen, somebody. So I want you to notice, first of all, the proper response in worship that is found in heaven. Look with me at chapter 5 and verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures... And the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, there's a lot going on in that verse, which I'm not going to have time to get into this morning, but did you get the crux of what's happening there? They fall down and worship the Lamb in response to what He has done and His worthiness to take the scroll. And church, the first principle I want to point out here is that worship must be intellectual. Now, it's more than just intellectual, but just, just stay with me for a moment. Worship is intellectual. Why? Because it's what you see or know God to be or do that causes a response to God. Or you could put it this way, the worship is the human response or the human reaction to a divine action. You see, they knew what that meant when he took the scroll and what is the intelligent response? They worship the Lord. You see, worship involves the mind. We must think about what God has done, who God is, why He is worthy, and the natural response to that is worship. Jesus said in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Please dismiss the idea that worship is a mindless activity, that we just kind of get pumped up into a frenzy, sing along with a chorus, and disengage the mind. No, we engage the mind. And I think that the most powerful worship is when, you, when your mind is stretched by the words of a song that give you a full understanding of God. Amen? As a perfect example, just look at what they sing in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. It says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Talk about engaging your mind with the truths of God, right? That's powerful worship right there. And church, when you've got those key components, you have the perfect worship song. It's interesting, you know, if you think of some of your favorite worship songs, and if I think of some of my favorite worship songs, right, a lot of them are copied from Revelation chapter 4 and 5. You have the hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty. 
You have Redemption or Revelation song by Carrie Job. You have Easy Worthy by Shane and Shane. And you even have Worthy by Elevation Worship, which are songs that we've been singing over the past couple of weeks. There's many, many more. And they're taken from these verses, these few songs found here in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. So to come back to my first point, worship must be intellectual. Your mind must be engaged. And here in heaven, we find that it is. The second thing I want you to notice, church, is the position assumed in worship. And from this, we can derive that worship is physical. I'm not talking about physical with the person next to you. I'm talking about physical in a different way, all right? It's not just something of the heart. It's also physical. Look back in chapter 5, verse 8. It says, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Now, church, why are they doing this? Why are they falling down? Because, frankly, they're awestruck. They are overwhelmed by what he has done and what he is about to do. They are so grateful, and their response to that is physical. They responded as ancient people would to royalty. Because, you know, in ancient times, if a king or queen walked into a room or you went into their palace, you would always bow, you would always get on your knees. And so worship here is physical. The word worshipped in Revelation chapter 5 is the Greek word proskuneia. We've all heard that word before. And it means to bow as an act of allegiance or regard. It means to prostrate oneself or to kneel down as an act of reverence. It's a physical affirmation of honor and authority and respect. It doesn't have to be a weird thing. Now, church, what does that mean for the way that you and I worship? Does that mean that we, we have to bow down? Well, it's not that you're not spiritual unless you bow down the next time we worship, but there are physical expressions of worship that the Bible speaks about, which can and will enhance the way we worship. So let me give you a few other examples. Psalm chapter 47 verse 1 says, Clap your hands, all peoples, shout to God with loud songs of joy. Did you get that, church? The Bible speaks about clapping your hands and, and singing loudly. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 8 it says, Therefore I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Now the emphasis of this verse is the attitude of the heart. However, we see that lifting hands is an appropriate posture of prayer and worship, and there is many other references to lifting your hands to God throughout Scripture. But church, can I be honest with you? The first time I came to this church as a non-believer, I watched people clapping and raising their hands, and I thought to myself, what's up with these people? What's wrong with these people, you know? I looked around to see where the ex exits were, thinking to myself, should I make a run for it now? But then I looked over to Pastor Ronell and decided she's worth hanging in for a couple more visits, right? As it turned out, it, it ended up being many more visits, right? <laughs> but you know what, church? When I developed my own relationship with the Lord, and truthfully, when I got over myself, in other words, when I got over my pride, I realized that the raising of your hands is just an expression of welcome and surrender. It's an expression of welcoming the Lord's presence into yours 
and it's the expression of surrendering your will and your ways to His. And when it came to clapping my hands, I thought to myself, if I can clap my hands and cheer for my friend, that, yeah, for teams like Liverpool, that's right, yeah. <laughs> Why can't I do that for a God who gave His life for me and rescued me from eternal judgment? Amen. It doesn't have to be this awkward thing of what people will think of me if I raise or clap my hands. It's, this is just one of those physical responses to the intellectual understanding of the worthiness of the God who was, who is, and is to come. Amen? The Bible also has many different references to physical expressions like dancing. I won't dance for you right now, right? And also lifting your eyes when it comes to worship. It even speaks about singing with a loud voice, as I made reference to earlier. Let me read that same passage for you. It says, clap your hands, all people, shout to God with loud songs of joy. In Psalm chapter 81, it says, sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with a harp. Do you get the picture that there's a bit of exuberance going on here when it comes to worship? Let me give you one more. Psalm chapter 100 verses 1 to 5 says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness, right? Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God, right? You engage in your mind. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him, bless His name. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Amen. Who knows what song came from that, that passage there? His love endures forever, his love endures forever. Sing praise, sing praise, sing praise, sing praise. Amen. So church, I know that some people, some of you at this point in time are thinking, you know, pastor, I can't sing, and you don't want to hear me sing. Now that may be true, and I've known some of you long enough that it may be true, right? <laughs> I'm just joking, I'm just joking. But let me tell you something. If God gave you a good voice, then use it to praise Him, and perhaps even get involved in the worship team. If God has given you an average voice, give it back to Him. Because you know what? I'll say to all the non-musical people in the house this morning, including myself, the voice that you have is the voice that the Lord, of God, the Lord God Almighty gave you. And it is an adequate instrument to praise the Lord. Because what did we just read? It said, make a joyful noise, right? Not a perfect noise. And we can all do that. And even if you're still not so sure about singing in public ever again, here's my advice. If you don't sing well, please sing loud. Right? <laughs> please sing loud. Because what's going to happen, you're going to be singing loud, and the person next to you is not singing. And they've actually got a good voice. And they're going to hear you singing, and they're going to want to try to drown you out. Right? And you know what's going to happen? There's going to be this huge anthem of worship. And it's going to sound amazing, right? <laughs> and you know what, church? It's going to reflect the same type of worship that's in heaven because it's not about perfection. It's about worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth. Amen? It's about loving the Lord your God with your whole heart, with your whole soul, with all your mind, 
and all your strength. Amen, somebody. Eh? So there's many different references to physical expressions of worship in Scripture. But isn't it interesting how in Western culture we are so guarded in our physical demonstrations of worship, especially in certain denominations? Now granted, that may be because of what some charismatics have done to worship and how they have distorted what true worship is. But you know what, church, when I look at Scripture, I don't find examples of people closing their eyes or folding their hands or arms or being unexpressive in worship. It doesn't necessarily make it wrong. But it certainly doesn't emulate how those in the Bible worship the Lord in response to what He has done and who He is. And it begs the question, why do some Christians think that enthusiasm about the most worthy person in the universe must somehow be carefully contained and guarded? You see, there's tremendous freedom in all of this if we just surrender. And the physicality of worship, I believe, is something that is and will be experienced in heaven one day. Amen? This is our practice ground. You're right. The third and final thing I want you to notice about the worship in heaven as Jesus takes the scroll is the kind of praise that is displayed. And as you read through the last few verses of this chapter, you get the idea that they put their whole being into it. Their whole heart, their everything. Let's read from verse 11 as they continue worshiping the Lord. It says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and all the elders fell down and worshipped. Do you see what's happened here, church? They are completely immersing themselves into worshipping God. That's their main focus. There's an authentic expression of worship exploding in heaven, which involves the intellect, the physical body, and hearts completely sold out and committed to loving God. There is this total abandonment to the one who is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Amen? And church, I will say at this point, I I get it. Everyone is wired differently. Some people are, you know what, out there when it comes to expressing themselves. And some people are more flatline in their expressions. It's supposed to be funny, by the way. But you know what, church? As we grow in our walk with the Lord, and as we study more about His worthiness and what He's done on our behalf, we need to ask ourselves a question. What is the worthy response to the price He has paid? Now, I don't think that our praise and worship will ever be able to bring the balance bar into equilibrium considering the great price that the Lord has paid. But in the very least, church, if we say he's paid a price worthy of our praise, if he's paid a price worthy of our worship, which not only happens when we sing, by the way, but in whatever we're involved in in this life, 
If that is the case, then what does that mean and how, we, how do we respond to that truth? Remember, as I said earlier, worship is the human response or the human reaction to a divine action. And I don't know about you, but that's all I see in these passages we've been reading and throughout the whole Bible for that matter. One divine action after another leading to the redemption of man and, and the earth. So church, as we conclude this message today, I want to leave you with this. Let me leave you with a challenge. Are you willing to respond to the divine actions of God in a manner that in some way reflects His worthiness? We've seen in Revelation chapter 5 the heavenly worship that engages the intellect, involves the physical body, and pours out heartfelt praise for the Lamb who was slain. I want to make a statement this morning. God's worthiness isn't just a theological concept. It's a reality that demands a response. Amen? Amen. Will you therefore engage your mind in understanding His greatness, His sacrifice, and His sovereignty? Will you let go of your inhibitions and express your, your reverence physically? And most importantly, will you offer your heart in authentic, wholehearted praise allowing your worship to be a reflection of the divine actions that have shaped your destiny. Remember, our worship isn't about perfection. It's about a genuine response to the one who is infinitely worthy. It's about celebrating the redemption and transformation that Christ has brought into our lives. And it's about acknowledging that He alone is worthy to open the scrolls and bring balance to the scales of justice. He did that on the cross, right? We praise His name. So church, as we worship some more today, and even as we leave this place today, let our lives become a continuous act of worship, not just within these walls, but in every moment and every aspect of our existence. And may we, like the heavenly host in Revelation chapter 5, declare with all our being, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Would you declare that with me this morning? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Can we give the Lord a great shout of praise in this place, church? Let's stand together as we prepare for worship this morning and as I close the word in prayer. Lord, we are reminded today of the profound truth that you alone are worthy. You are worthy because of your divine actions, your sacrifice, and your sovereignty. You are the lamb who was slain, and through your blood, you have ransomed us from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made us a kingdom and priest to our God, and because of you, we shall reign on the earth. As we reflect on the worship in heaven described in Revelation chapter 5, we are inspired to worship you with our whole being, mind, body, and heart. Help us, Lord, to engage our minds in understanding your greatness, to express our reverence physically, and to offer our hearts in genuine and wholehearted praise. May our worship extend beyond these walls and into every moment of our lives. Let it be a continuous act of gratitude and adoration 
for the redemption and transformation you have brought into our lives. Lord, we thank you for your worthiness and for the privilege of worshiping you. May our lives be a testimony to your greatness and may your name be glorified in all that we do. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Amen.